Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Please be seated. We are kind of in the middle of a series on the book of Genesis. We started in back in July, I believe, and we have a ways to go yet. But we've come this morning to sort of a midpoint. We've been talking about the creation itself and God's work in the creation. And last week we talked about the seventh day when God had stepped back from everything that he had made and he looked at it all together in harmony and he said, it is all very good. I debated a little bit about where to go from there because in this series I want to talk about some of the things that we see in that early creation which were all very good. Some of the relationships that people had with God, the relationships that we have with one another, the relationship that we have even with the world that God made. But then I thought, well, we'll do that, but we'll come back and do that after we've looked at this thing that changes everything. In Genesis 1, verse 31, as I said, through chapter 2, verse 3, our text from last week, Moses wrote, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He stopped his work. And he rested on the seventh day. He ceased from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so we come to that point where, to borrow a phrase from a Broadway musical of one description or another, there is this one brief shining moment when the heavens and the earth and everything in them, the universe itself existed in perfect harmony with itself and with the God who created all things. During this time, Adam, the first man, and Eve, the woman who, as we saw, was created from his side, knew their creator, they knew God, and they honored him as God, living in obedience 
to his commands, their relationship to him, their relationship to creation, and their relationship to one another at that time was harmonious, completely unmarked by sin, and completely absent of the shame that so rightly accompanies sin. Now, I want to put forward at this point that we can't even imagine that world. We can't even imagine a world in which everything is very good because that would be like someone who has only ever seen through their whole life in black and white trying to imagine the concept of color. How would you describe color to someone who had only ever seen in shades of gray? I read earlier in the week about some species of life that exist about five miles below the surface in some of the deepest parts of the Marianas Trench. Of course, explaining anything to a fish is probably pointless, to be honest. But imagine trying to explain the concept of light and air to a creature that spends its entire existence five miles down in the sea. There's no frame of reference for it. There's no adequate analogy. We cannot, with our fallen and broken imaginations, turn our thoughts toward that world that's described in the first couple of chapters of Genesis and imagine what it would be like to live in a world that is not fallen and broken. We can't imagine it because the tool that we're trying to use to imagine it is itself fallen and broken. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but by way of example, consider the final verse of Genesis chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we read that, and yeah, when, when we were in junior high, some of us chuckled about it a little bit if we had to read it in a class or something like that. But think about it. Have you ever noticed that outside of Renaissance so-called art, when people, especially Christian people, try to create a visual representation of Adam and Eve in the garden, what do we do? We place flowers and shrubberies and fruit and things very strategically to make it far less obvious that the people we're talking about or the people that we're painting were, let's just say, dressed in his righteousness alone. Maybe that's a polite way of putting it. And the thing is, they were not ashamed of their nakedness. Not at all. They had no reason to be. They lived in this world where everything was very good. There was no sin. There was no lust. There was no embarrassment. There was no shame at all. So it's not their lack of shame that causes us a problem. It's the fact that shame exists within us. When we try to imagine that world, we have been so infected with unrighteousness and sin, we experience shame for them, or at the very least, a whole lot of embarrassment. Now, in spite of our reaction to such things, we can believe 
even though we can't imagine it, that everything was very good at the beginning because God not only saw that it was so according to the book of Genesis, God said that it was so when he inspired this book through the prophet Moses. We believe it, and that's where we plant our flag throughout this discussion. When God speaks by his spirit through the word, we need to hear it, and we need to believe what he says. And this is what scripture says. For some period of time, we don't know how long. After that sixth day of creation, all things continued in this state, which God had described through Moses as very good. God saw everything that he had made collectively And behold, it was very good. Which brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty. The word can have a positive connotation or a negative one. And in this case, it's negative. Um, Older translations said the serpent was more subtle than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in a garden? Now, before someone objects, you can't really believe in a talking serpent. Let me just say, yes, I do. Absolutely, I do. Why? Why do I believe that? Because God's word says it. God's word says that a beast, described here in Genesis chapter 3 as the serpent, which is not a fixed point of reference necessarily in the Hebrew language. But that beast, that serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now having said that I believe this was a real event that really happened in time and space history, I want to say also I do not believe in the talking serpent of Renaissance art. It's inevitably portrayed as just a common but large snake as we know them today, probably kind of coiled around the branch of a tree and speaking maybe with a lisp like Sir Hiss in the cartoon version of Robin Hood. And again, we can assume, we cannot assume, that the world before the fall of man was just like this world. So we can't take these words that are spoken and try to apply images that exist in our minds. Well, I know what a serpent is. Well, yeah, I know what a serpent is today. But that doesn't mean I know what a serpent was before the fall. And we really should not try to get behind or to go beyond what is written. All we really know of the serpent here is that it was not a creature who slithered around on its belly. And the reason we know that is because that was part of the curse that God pronounced on it in the creation as a result of the fall. Genesis 3, 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the creature we know today is the post-fall version of this creature. 
We also know from this passage taken in context with the rest of Scripture that the serpent in Genesis 3 was kind of a host in some sense for another power. Revelation chapter 12 speaks of the great dragon, which in Hebrew is the same word, dragon and serpent. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And Revelation 20 uses similar language. So the serpent here in Genesis chapter 3 is a physical form taken in some way by Satan, this powerful spiritual being who wants to interact with the woman and to tempt her away from fidelity to God's word. And we talked about this some last fall when I went through the series on our ancient foe, but I'm going to repeat some of the things that we said at that time. And notice again that in Genesis chapter 1, we hear God speaking. The, the real theme of Genesis 1 is not merely creation. It's that constant repetition back and forth between, and God said, and it was so. God speaks, things happen. God speaks, and, and things which did not exist come into being. And then we come to Genesis chapter 2, where God creates the man that he makes in his own image, and not surprisingly, that man begins to speak into the creation as well. God brings the other animals, the land animals, before him, and he names them and acknowledges their existence. And then finally, recognizing that there is no creature who is a counterpart to the man, God takes him, puts him into a deep sleep, makes a woman out of his side. And the very first thing that Adam does when he awakens from that sleep is to speak into that reality. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I don't know, we might come back to that, but it's ish. She shall be called ish. I get this right now, Ish, because she was taken out of Isha. And the words actually are not related, they just sound similar. So it's kind of a fun little play on words that happens in the Hebrew there. Now in chapter 3, we've heard God speaking in chapter 1, we've heard man speaking in chapter 2. Now in chapter 3, Satan enters the discussion. We meet him for the very first time in the form of a serpent, and he comes to the woman in verse 1. And he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now what God actually said was not only more positive, it was also more forceful. It wasn't in the, framed as a suggestion in Genesis 2 verses 16 and 17, and the Lord God, that, that's an important distinction, because throughout chapter 1, we've met God as Elohim, a single word in Hebrew. But beginning with the creation of man, that gets upgraded. He is now Yahweh Elohim. He is the Lord God. And that's important because everything he speaks, he's commanding to the people that he made. And the Lord God commanded the man in Genesis 2. 2 verses 16 and 17, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
well, every tree less one, but notice how it's framed. You may eat <coughs> of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So even in prohibiting the one tree, what God did is put the emphasis on all the others that were available. Presumably even the tree of life, there is never any command where God said stay away from that one too, not until after they had sinned. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will carry a significant consequence. But you have to wonder, with the entire garden before them, why would they focus on that one thing that they can't have? Well, we know why we do, because we have sin. But evidently, it was something that Satan was able to manipulate them into pretty quickly, to just say, what difference does it make if there's a thousand other trees and a thousand other kinds of fruit that you could be... God said no to that one. He's kind of mean and nasty, isn't he? Why would he deny you anything when he's supposedly given you everything? That's what Satan wants her to do, to consider not what's been granted, but to focus on the things that have been denied. And he even wants to question the reality of whether those things were truly granted or denied. The serpent said to the woman, did God, not the Lord God, did God actually say, did God really, really, are you sure? You sure you're interpreting that correctly? Because it seems like maybe God said it, but maybe you just didn't get it. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So the Lord God is now merely God, and the command has become kind of a guideline. And then the serpent just flat out denies the word of the living God. Eve says, yeah, God said we shouldn't eat of that one, because in the day that we eat it, we will die. And Satan says, you will not surely die. For Elohim, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like Elohim, knowing good and evil. And it's at that point that Eve falls, really. It's at that point that she starts judging the matter for herself. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. This is that moment that we saw a few weeks back, described by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, when he said, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking or in their speculation, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is the fall of man. They couldn't claim that they didn't know God. They did. We find out a little later in chapter 3 that evidently God walked with them in some sense in the garden in the cool of the day. They absolutely knew God. This is not ignorance. It's not naivete. It's, it's disobedience and rebellion. They knew God. 
They just did not honor him as God. They started thinking of God as something less than what he really is. And after they've kind of pushed him off to a distance and made him a little smaller than the God that they knew, they wondered if this God person might actually be lying to them and denying them joy and satisfaction and beauty and knowledge. It's like we hear so many times when people say, well, my God's not like that. My God would never do that. Surely a loving God wouldn't deny us all the best that this world has to offer. And if he's that kind of God, who needs him? They became futile, empty in their speculation. And I believe even before they took the first bite, their foolish hearts were darkened. Thing is, this has been the strategy of Satan through all of history. John the Apostle wrote, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So three things there that John says are characteristics of the, the things that are of this world. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. The Greek word there could very easily and probably should be translated lust. It carries a stronger idea than the word desire carries for us today. The lust of the flesh, of the body, and the lust of the eyes, covetousness, we covet what we see, and the pride of life. These things are not from the Father. These things come from the world. And isn't this just what our first parents saw in the fruit of the tree? So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It's the desires, the lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the desires, the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. You will be as gods, the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now understand what's happening here in the Garden of Eden. Some of you have heard me say in the past, salvation is by grace through faith. It has always been by grace through faith. Even prior to sin, they needed to believe. They needed to have faith in order to stay in fellowship with God. So here they are caught between competing truth claims. The God who made them has come to them and said, don't eat from that one tree because in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And Satan has come to them and said, no, in the day you eat of that tree, you'll be like God. You'll finally, your eyes will be opened and you will know all of the wonderful good things that that God fellow is denying you. 
Now, Adam and Eve are caught between those competing truth claims. They can't test them. The only way to test the claim is to eat the fruit, and if they eat the fruit and God is telling the truth, then it's too late. They can't approach this from the, the scientific method and say, well, how, I, I, I suppose one of them could have. <laughs> Why don't you give it a try and see what happens? But they didn't do that. They're caught between these competing truth claims and what they have to do is just believe that the God who made them knows what he's talking about and has the right over his creation and over the people who he made in his own image to tell them what to do. And honest to goodness, that's, that's really at the root of a lot of sin to this very day. We don't like being told what to do. When we're little children, we don't like it. When mom and dad tell us what to do, if it's not what we want to do, well, you're not the boss of me. And Adam and Eve have been offered this vision which seems like something majestic to them. You will be as gods. God, on the other hand, had said, no, you're not going to be like God. You're going to die in the day you eat of this. And their choice is a faith choice. Am I going to trust the God who made me? Or am I going to trust my own eyes, my own senses, and the word of the serpent who is trying to deceive me? Of course, they didn't see it that way. So they chose not to do what would please God, They chose to do what they thought would best please themselves and make themselves happy. So instead of loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and obeying him, honoring him as God, saying, okay, you said don't eat from that one, we won't eat from that one, and you gave us all of these others, thank you, thank you, that not all fruit tastes the same, thank you, that you have so graciously given us this abundance of everything to feast on for as long as we thank you for the tree of life. That if we eat from that tree, we can live forever. But instead, they, they fell. And the fall into sin was and truly is that simple. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, if the Lord is willing, that changes everything. It changed their relationship to God. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the tree of the garden. They disobeyed. They rebelled against the God who made them. And as soon as they had done it, they knew. And so they hid themselves. It changed their relationship to God. But even before that, it had already changed their relationship to one another. At the end of chapter 2, we read a little bit earlier, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But now, they see each other the way we would have seen them. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So a clear indication that shame has come into the world too. They, they realize, Calvin Miller in one of his books asks the question, were Adam and Eve more naked after they sinned than they were before? And he answers the question, yes, absolutely. Because they saw themselves for what they truly were. And because shame came with sin, they decided we need to do something about this. And so they took leaves and they sewed them together and they made themselves coverings. We also see in verse 9 that when the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Um, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. So with their rebellion, with their sin, with the shame that inevitably came from that also came fear. And in all of this, man's relationship to God, man's relationship to himself, man's relationship to others, and as we'll see later on, even man's relationship to the planet, all of those things that were part of what it meant to be created in the image of God were completely changed by the fall into sin. Now, if you want to think in terms of the windshield of your car, which is maybe a decent illustration for here in Alberta, when we talk about what sin did to the image of God in man, we're not talking about that little stone chip way up in the corner that can be fixed for 15 bucks if you go to one of those orange awnings in the parking lot at Walmart. We're talking about like the time that I was driving down the road in my van and I passed a grain truck and I got nailed by a rock that was about the size of a baseball and I was really happy to be wearing my glasses because the glass from the inside hit me in the face. And the image of that window was so shattered. It wasn't something that could be fixed by, you know, just the little guy with his special little tool. And when we think of the fractured image of God in man, don't think of, you know, a classic painting that has a little flaw that can be easily touched up by a specialty artist. Think of a painting that's been ripped to shreds by somebody with a packing knife and a bad attitude. Everything changed. The world that is, this world that we know, is not the world that was. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the structure that verse is saying, in the sin of that one man, the entire race sinned. And that brought death to everyone, and that changed everything. The harmony that once existed between creation and its creator, creator had been broken. As it says in Romans 8, Verses 20 through 22, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not at the creation's desire, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope, God subjected the creation to futility. We call that the curse, but it was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free. And listen to how it describes that futility. It'll be set free from its bondage to corruption. The world we live in now is in bondage, slavery, to corruption. The world and its desires are passing away, John says somewhere. It is in bondage to corruption, and it was subjected to this in hope that one day it would obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, sin, the fall of man, changed everything. Not just for man and our relationships within this world, it changed the creation itself. And because this came as a result of this cosmic treason against the sovereign God, restoration is not going to come through human progress in science and technology and government. It does not work that way. We cannot fix what was broken by human works with more human works. It just can't be done. We can't even imagine the world that was, much less restore it. And I think in our idolatrous attempts to do so, we often just make matters worse. But in verses 14 and 15 of Genesis 3, we get our first little glimpse of the answer. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here it is. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We call it the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, if you wanted to translate that word. This is the very first promise found in Scripture of the coming of Jesus, our Redeemer. In the very moment of humanity's fall, a fall which consisted of listening to and obeying the voice of Satan and rejecting the voice of God, God chose to speak once more and this time to promise life to the dead and to call into being again things which did not exist as though they did. At this very moment when it seemed like sin and rebellion and darkness would overwhelm God's good creation, and they kind of had, instead of saying, I'm going to scrap the whole thing and start over, which God had every right to do, God said, where sin abounds, grace will abound still more. So the very moment when the creation was subjected to futility, the creator himself offered hope 
through his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if the Lord is willing, I'll speak more on this in weeks to come, but for today, I want to end with that promise as we see it in the New Testament text in the book of Colossians. We've looked at this passage a couple of times already in this series because of its reference to Jesus as the creator. But notice again what it says. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Adam was created to be the image of God, threw that away, broke it, shattered it, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God, restored, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Sin changes everything, but Jesus came to change it back. This is the promise of God to all who believe, and God always keeps his promises. He always has, and he always will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look around at the world in which we live and we see sometimes so much hopelessness and brokenness. In spite of the beauty that still exists, we see so much that we feel is not the way that it should be. Lord, give us eyes to look beyond this fallen, broken creation and that fallen, broken image that we still carry and to look to Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn of all creation, the very image and representation of your nature, the one who has come to reconcile all things in earth and heaven to you, making peace through the blood of his cross. Help us to look to him in faith and to find in him salvation and life. And Father, help us to look to him in hope, understanding that a day is coming when all that's broken is going to be fixed, when all that's diseased is going to be healed, when everything that was made wrong by the sin of our first parents will be made right through the obedience and faithfulness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.